So we turn to chapter 15 of Job, reading the entire chapter of Job 15. So the flower fades and the grass withers, the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job 15, God's word. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you? And the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? Why do your eyes flash? Do you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare, that wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passes among them. The wicked man rise in pain all his days, Through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty. Running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield. Because he's covered his face with fat and gathered fat upon his waist. And has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit. Which were ready to become heaps of ruin. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tent of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb prepares 
deceit. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So we know that the time comes for tough love. Now, nobody enjoys this. You don't look forward to it. Rightly, we try to avoid tough love. That is, someone acts out, and we prefer a gentle word of patient correction. Why raise your voice if you don't have to? It's much easier if they just say, you're right, my fault, forgive me. Of course, as you know, this often does not work, and we have to turn up the heat sometimes. You raise your voice, use stronger language, impose timeouts or grounding or other sorts of punishments. And if this is still no avail, then we start to hand over. That is, in the face of obstinance, we hand over to the church. The church hands over to the world and the world to authorities. Yeah, tough love sometimes must call the police. And yet even though necessary times... Tough love is hazardous. What if it's too hard and too fast? What if you're mistaken and the other person is not in the wrong? Poorly executed tough love can ruin the relationship, crush spirits, and drive the person to even worse places. And it can be cruel. Well, as Eliphaz steps up a second time to address Job, he decides it's time for some tough love. The question is, though, how well does he carry it out? So after his long three-chapter speech, Job decides to take a break. He steps down from the microphone and grabs a seat. And with an open mic, Eliphaz decides to fill it. He's been listening now for nine chapters, and so it's due time for him to share his thoughts. And his mood is not the same as it was before. In his first talk, back in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz opened with a measure of gentleness and polite sensitivity. He told Job to sit back and be doctored. He said that Job just needs to trust in his piety, for as the retribution principle lays out, you sow trouble, you reap pain. Eliphaz also relayed a night vision that he had custom-made for Job. He warned against folly sang a hymn to God, and blessed those disciplined by the Lord. And Eliphaz encouraged Job with a grand and speedy restoration. In just a little time now, he said, God would rain prosperity back on Job. However, Eliphaz's tender hopefulness has evaporated, as he now breaks the ice with a sharp criticism, a tough rebuke. Should a sage answer with windy knowledge? Should he fill his belly with an east wind? He labels what Job has been saying as windy knowledge, as hot air from his stomach. Now, breezy air is insubstantial, it does not last long, and it's all over the place. And an east wind, that is the Sirocco, that hot, destructive, and hated Santa Ana. Job's claimed knowledge is a burp full of hot wind. And if he belches up stupidity, then Job is no wise man. He postures himself as a sage, but his words have been unprofitable talk and rambling with no benefit. In Eliphaz's two opening verses, he managed to call Job both stupid and a fool. When a debate between friends 
devolves into name-calling, it has significantly deteriorated. And he is just warming up. For what he says next is like dropping a bomb. Verse 4, he says, You're doing away with the fear of God. Or literally, and more strongly, he said, You broke fear. Now, the fear of God is the foundation of all piety and religion. It's the substructure upon which are built all the other religious virtues and disciplines. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no religious devotion. And Eliphaz says Job broke this fear. He abrogated it. He nullified it. He canceled the veneration of God. This is the ancient version of saying Job is anti-religion, he's an atheist, and a destroyer of true piety. Even idolaters are scared of the gods, but Job is worse than this. This is like discussing with a friend why you got cancer, and your friend says, eh, because you're not a Christian. It's going from you sin to you're a reprobate in two seconds flat. Eliphaz didn't merely bring out the paddle, but he drilled holes in it and filled it with nails. And the spikes of his club just keep coming, as now Eliphaz condemns Job rapid fire. Job's impiety, he says, restricts prayer to God. His mouth teaches his own sin. His tongue is crafty and crooked. Eliphaz doesn't need to judge Job, for his own words do it for him. The lips of Job are self-condemning, and everything Job says is wicked and can be used as evidence against him in a court of law. Next, he lambasts Job for being supremely arrogant. He says, are you the first man? Are you older than the hills? Did you steal information from God's secret counsels? You restrict wisdom to yourself alone. Now with this, Eliphaz isn't referring to Adam, but he's actually calling to mind a pagan myth, it's called the Adapa myth, where a semi-divine first human was sent from God to communicate all knowledge and civilization to the ignorant people. It's kind of like chewing Job out for acting like he's Superman. That is, Job's ego is so overblown and inflated, it needs a good, sharp needle. Of course, to reduce someone to stupid, is it's, to do so, it's always effective also to assert your own intelligence. I'm smarter than you, which is exactly what Eliphaz does next. He says, we know everything you do, Job. There's nothing that you know that we do not. He says, the gray-haired scholars are with us. The elderly sages with us are older than your dad. Now this, we are smarter, point, counters what Job said back in chapter 12, verse 3. There, Job stated that he had knowledge too, just as his friends did, and that he was not inferior to them. And he said this because Zophar, as you'll remember, called Job brainless, empty-headed. Job argued for equality in mental capabilities. I'm just as smart. But Eliphaz asserts his superiority over Job. You dumb, we smart, basically. 
the Orthodox tradition of the sages is with Eliphaz. All of church history is on Eliphaz's side. As you can tell, the quality of this conversation continues to degrade. Eliphaz is like a grown man acting like a toddler who just resorts to saying, I'm better and you're not. Indeed, Eliphaz addresses none of Job's actual arguments, but he only assassinates his character. He also tears him down by building himself up, verse 11. Note he asks, are all the the comforts of God too small for you? Now, this gentle word, or comforts, is actually a self-referent. This is how Eliphaz is coloring his first speech to Job back in chapter 4 and 5. Thus, he asserts a divine quality. He says, I gave you God comforts. I administered to you the gentleness of the Lord. But you think you're too high and mighty for it? You think you're too good for God's consolation? How dare you? Now, this is a pretty lofty claim that Eliphaz has God on his side. Thus, to reject Eliphaz is to reject God. Of course, as you know, this sadly is not unusual for us to do. When we counsel others, how quickly we can maintain that our advice is God's. I speak God's will for you. And if God is with us, then this justifies us in demonizing and criticizing the other person without restraint. Thus, Eliphaz continues to unload on Job. He says, your mind carries you away. You are insane, Job. Your rationalism is just doing what you want to do. You vent your temper at God. You're mad at God because you think you're upright, but no man is pure. God doesn't even trust in his angels. In God's eyes, even the heavens are impure. Thus, how much more someone like you, Job, who is abominable and corrupt. You are a man who drinks injustice like water. Once again, Eliphaz has removed all filters. Job did not merely sin. He isn't merely or just a fool, but he's now the worst of the worst. He's called abominable, corrupt, and he gulps down sin like a thirsty man does water. Yet this vilifying of Job betrays poor listening. As you'll remember, Job never claimed to be sinless. He actually confessed any sin that he might be ignorant of. He pleaded with God to reveal what sin of his youth he was being punished for. Instead, Job only asserted that he had not sinned in any way to deserve the horrendous wrath God poured out upon him. Job insisted that there was no good reason that God should become his enemy. Hence, this, as we can see here, there is no sound advice without first solid listening. Bad listening multiplies poor counsel of which Eliphaz is the poster child for at the moment. Though where Eliphaz doesn't listen, note he demands that Job listen to him. Eliphaz breaks the golden rule. He insists on the respect of being heard, but he will not give the respect to to listen. 
He says, I teach you, you listen to me. What I have seen, I will tell you. Eliphaz is the teacher, and Job is the pupil in this relationship, and this hierarchy ought not to be questioned. Again, Eliphaz claims the authority of tradition. What that what he teaches is what the sages of old taught. The wise ancestors published on this, and now Eliphaz passes on this timeless truth and wisdom to Job. Eliphaz's, Eliphaz footnotes orthodox tradition as his seal of approval. Now, quoting traditional teaching is fine. This is valid evidence to support your position. However, the craftiness of this is the assumption that the tradition is unified. It's selective citations. You cherry-pick the ancestors who agree with you, and you suppress the sages who disagree with you. You make claims like, the whole church has always agreed with me. And yet, scholars of old have never been so unanimous. Eliphaz's claim that he is one with the like-minded ancient sages raises our suspicions. Yet now he launches into a long monologue on the wicked in verses verse 20 to the end of the chapter. This is his lecture on how the tradition is uniform over against Job, how Job is the heretic out of accord with the undivided orthodoxy. Though before he begins, he does add a brief preamble in verse 19. It says, To the sages alone the land was given, and no unauthorized person passes among them. Now this point negates what Job said back in chapter 7, when he said that the land was given over to the wicked. As a counterpoint to the retribution principle, Job stated how the wicked often become kings and rulers. But now Eliphaz denies this. He says, no, the land is ruled only by the wise and the godly. The wicked have never established residency in the good life. And now, to prove his point, Eliphaz waxes long on the miserable existence of the wicked. Note, he goes on, the wicked never prosper, prosper, but are constantly in travail. And Eliphaz's description of the wicked is bleak to the power of two. He says they writhe in pain their whole lives. Sounds of danger torment their ears. If they do attain a brief moment of peace, destroyer springs on them unawares. The wicked have no hope of returning from darkness. He's destined for the sword as he wanders begging for food. Anxiety and worry terrify him. He's paranoid of every whisper and, and corner. A life of pain, stress, and poverty. This is the lot of the wicked. Disquiet and fear overpowers him like a king going into battle. The wicked, in fact, are so jittery and uneasy, he cannot even control his bladder. Yet despite this panic attack life, the wicked still fights and resists God. He raises his fist to God and acts like a warrior towards the Almighty. Literally, in verse 26, Eliphaz says, The wicked charge God with armor and a shield. He covers his face with fat 
and he makes blubber shield his loins. Now, this becoming fat in battle refers to being arrogant, unfeeling, and stubborn, as well as to beefing up militarily. That is, the wicked take evil steroids to bulk up to fight God. Of course, painting the wicked as a hulky marine charging God in, into, in battle is a parody that marks their folly. This is like a mole challenging a lion to a one-on-one. But such is the stupid hubris of the wicked. They act high and mighty, but in reality, they are cursed to dwell in condemned cities. Ghost towns that will soon be bulldozed are their addresses. For the wicked are constantly impoverished. They don't become rich, and their wealth does not last. None of their accomplishments will benefit them in death. For they will never escape the darkness of Sheol, Flame torches their roots, and he passes away by the breath of his mouth. The wicked perish condemned by their own voice. And the heart of Eliphaz's lecture is reached in verse 31. He says, let, them not, let him not trust in emptiness, for emptiness will be his payment. This is the lex talionis, the perfectly balanced retribution. The wicked trusted in emptiness, and he gets paid emptiness. Vanity sown is vanity reaped. When your confidence is in nothing, your recompense is nothing. This is the heartbeat of Eliphaz's argument. It's the essence of the orthodox tradition that he relays. You reap what you sow, you get as you gave, you get paid according to the effort you put in, you put out evil, and your salary is evil. Thus, for his impiety, the wicked are always paid in full. Says the branches of the wicked are never turned green, they shed fruit like a grapevine, and drop blossoms like an olive tree in a strong wind. Barrenness pervades the company of the godless, and fire torches the tents of bribery. The wicked waste all the potential for fruitfulness, and in their fertility, their only fate is the fire. The bare vine and the fruitless tree is good for nothing, except to be chopped down and used as firewood. Job said that there would be hope for a tree to come back to life. Eliphaz corrects this, only if the tree is good, a wicked tree has no hope. Finally, though, Eliphaz closes with a zinger. He says, the wicked, they conceive trouble, give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit, verse 35. Here, the full reproductive cycle of the wicked is only evil all the time. Yet there is a personal application in this verse for Job. For the word for womb is literally belly, to connect back to verse 2, and Job's belly, full of foolish wind. Eliphaz matches up the two bellies. Eliphaz spent all this time giving the anatomy of the wicked, and so far he's kept it all general, stereotypical, and impersonal. This is how the wicked person is. 
But now with the mention of belly, he drops the mic. Job, you are the man. You're the wicked person. Job, you're the perfect match, and you align with every nook and cranny. Remember, Job is lamented of his distress. He expressed his fear of darkness. He mourned of being unfruitful, poor, anxious, and desolate. And so Eliphaz responds to his lament by saying, if the shoe fits, Job, you are the wicked man. All that you have suffered is the fate of the wicked. And if you are paid emptiness, this means you worked and trusted in emptiness. And with this mic dropped, Eliphaz walks off stage. He says nothing more. This is Eliphaz's tough love. He's handed Job over. Job must suffer for what he's earned. There's nothing else Eliphaz can do. Job is on his own. Only he can help himself now. Thus, we are left asking, how did Eliphaz do? Was this good, tough love? Is this the strong and nasty-tasting medicine that the doctor ordered? Well, we cannot deny that some of what Eliphaz said was, has truth in it, especially in his long description of the wicked. Being miserable, fighting God, burned up for fruitfulness, you can find similar verses to these in the prophets and in the New Testament, particularly on the ultimate level, in the scales of everlasting justice, the Lord will condemn all the wicked. This monologue on the wicked isn't too far afield, except Job has been arguing more within this life. He talked about the wicked prospering here and now during life under the sun. Job wasn't musing about the halls of eternity. Thus, within this life, Eliphaz's description is weakened by the vast number of exceptions. The wicked never get rich. The wicked never hold on to their prosperity. Communist oligarchs laugh at this. Corrupt businessmen pass on golden parachutes to their kids and grandkids for generations. One could argue that crime pays better than virtue. Also, the wicked suffer from persistent pain and anxiety? Well, they may suppress their fear of judgment deep in their subconscious, but the impious and unrighteous can be fearless and worry-free. The criminal and diabolical strut around in the confidence that They can beat the system. They've paid off all the authorities. What concerns do they have? And reaping what you sow? But the godless are especially good at flipping this like a pancake. A bigot will will sow oppression and reap tax-free riches. The wicked can employ hatred for massive profits only to turn around and give some to a charitable cause and then be praised as the most noble philanthropist. Many wicked are miserable, but many are not. Eliphaz's universal description is only partially true. Next, there's his categorization of Job himself. Is Job really another one of these wicked men? Has Job broken the fear of the Lord? 
as he ignored the consolations of God issued by Eliphaz. Is his knowledge windy, destructive, and so inferior to Eliphaz's? Well, on this point, Eliphaz has stepped into quicksand. For first and foremost, foremost, Eliphaz's judgment of Job contradicts what God said about Job in the opening chapters. God approved of Job's fear of the Lord. The Lord praised Job as the most upright man. Well, here Eliphaz has condemned him whom the Lord declared righteous. This is a grievous error. Eliphaz's tough love to correct all of Job's errors is an effort to fix what is not broken. He criticized Job for being arrogant and self-righteous, but Job has confessed his sinfulness. He's admitted his limits, his weakness, his inability. Job acknowledges that he didn't understand God's wisdom, and so he begged to understand. Eliphaz is correcting one who needs compassion, not correction. He disciplines one who needs patience, not the rod. Thus, Eliphaz's consolations do not come from God, but they are all his own. Finally, Eliphaz drops the mic on Job without an ounce of hope. Note there's no call to repentance, no mention of restoration, no encouragement to change his ways. Eliphaz basically took Job out to the woodhouse, beat him, and then told him to never come home again. If Eliphaz was the father of the prodigal son, his guards would have met him at the gate, beat him, and said, you're not welcome. Therefore, if we grade Eliphaz's tough love, he gets a failing grade. He didn't listen well. He calls Job's names, attacks his character, doesn't interact with Job's arguments. He corrects Job for what is not wrong. And he lumps Job in with the most wicked, in which there are no exceptions, according to him. He denies Job any hope, and he cuts him off from reconciliation. Eliphaz's tough love feels more like cruelty and hatred than love. And from his excessive correction, we are made that much more grateful for the perfect correction of our Savior. The harshness of Eliphaz contrasts vividly with the tenderness of our shepherd. For one, Jesus never rebukes us wrongly. In the law, Jesus does convict and lay bare our sins perfectly. The Spirit humbles us by our sin exactly, fairly, and poignantly. It's the evil one that weaponizes guilt for things we're not guilty of. Our own consciences can can convict us beyond the law, and our loved ones can excel at being at over-the-top guilt trips, but not Jesus Christ. In the law and in truth, Jesus shows us our sin and misery. He doesn't call us names to be mean, but he diagnoses us just as we are. Second, Christ never deals with us only by the law. He uses the law to drive us to the gospel, 
Jesus' correction of us, and we do need it, is always, though, infused with and finished with hope and the certainty of forgiveness and reconciliation. We repent upon the rock-solid foundation that Christ died for us and that the Father is just and faithful to forgive. Even when we're stubborn and slow to respond, Jesus patiently holds out his loving embrace. We can wallow in the, in the mud of sin, but the Father always runs to welcome us home. Finally, Christ has the perfect wisdom and patience to know the difference between correction and comfort. Sometimes we need a sharp rebuke. In our arrogance, it can take a smart blow to humble us. But at many other times, we're weak and frail. We're depressed and in pain. Grief, agony, and anxiety can overwhelm us. And as such, and at such moments, sure, we're not free from sin, but what we need is compassion, not the law. And so Christ does not put out a smoldering wick. He does not break the bent reed. Jesus' love is patient with you and his affection is tender. Indeed, long is Christ merciful patience and warm kindness. Just think how patient Christ has been with us through so many of our sinful habits that we just cannot break. We'll make progress with some sin only for us to backslide a few years later. And yet through it all, Jesus is faithfully patient and merciful. In our frailty, your Savior's bedside manner is wise and loving. This is the constancy of the gospel and grace by which Christ Jesus deals with us throughout our lives. Thus, may we learn from him how to live in the gospel towards each other. May we not follow in the steps of Eliphaz. We should not confuse abuse clothed in morality as love. Listening comes first. Careful evaluation corrects accurately. The rod should not be spared, but it should be used sparingly. Compassion with love takes the lead. And the hope of the sweet gospel should permeate all that we do. For in this way, we bring glory to God by truth expressing itself in love. And we enjoy the privilege of being made like our Savior for his glory now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.